Hi, this is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. On today's episode, we chat with musician, podcaster, and teacher Tony Stewart. Tony is a multi-instrumentalist, currently performing with his jazz duo, The Somerset Combo. He's also the producer and co-host of a fascinating music-based podcast called The Stewie Tunes Show. Along with his co-host, music writer Aaron Badgley, they delve into a range of musical ideas. Tony also teaches high school music classes and conducts for stage bands and orchestra. Today, he makes his pitch for why 80s pop stars Hall & Oates, The Beatles, and jazz legend Miles Davis are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Tony Stewart, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Well, Bernard, thanks for having me. This is actually my first uh, ever guest appearance on a podcast since I started my own show. So uh, this is really exciting, actually. Thanks so much. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure. This will be a lot of fun. Um, I'd like to start with, uh, just because I know nothing about him, I'd like to start with Miles Davis. Yes. Um, but before before we get into that, um, Tony Stewart as a teen, how were you sourcing your music? Were you, were you buying LPs? Were you listening to the radio? Were you going to live gigs? What was sort of your, your media of choice at that time? Okay, so I grew up in North Bay, Ontario, so there weren't a lot of live concerts to go to. We would have, you know, the occasional person come to North Bay and play, but uh, uh, started with vinyl, switched to cassettes when I got my first Walkman, and then... Uh, much, much later on, started getting CDs. But yeah, and radio, of course, listening to the radio as well. So at the 14 or 15-year-old, Tony is listening to which bands? What kind of music? Oh, I mean, even at about 14 or 15, I started becoming a Billy Joel fan. And uh, I was going to, you know, as we mentioned before the show here, I was going to choose Billy Joel as one of my essence of cool. But I want to stay away from idol worship because he is my all-time favorite. So I thought I'd choose uh, three different ones but yeah i was listening like billy joel early on i i had taken piano lessons as a kid and, and it always impressed me you know that here was a a rock and roll guy but playing piano right so that was kind of neat and it was just different you know and your introduction to him was what piano man or well what was what album was uh, the greatest hits volume one and two a friend of mine bought yeah. it on vinyl and we put it on and, and i had never heard of the guy and i was like wow i just it was a instant love affair you know so uh blew me away right right away were your friends listening to billy joel as well yeah this one particular friend was and um and quite a few i guess and you know i was around gosh you remember uh it's still rock and roll to me was a big hit when i was in about grade six i guess uh you know so i i did know a little bit about him but I, you know, I didn't know a lot of his stuff until I heard that album. And then I was absolutely gobsmacked, you know? Yeah. Well, we're going to make a bit of a quantum leap here because as uh, Billy Joel is one world, but Miles Davis is a completely different world altogether. So tell me yes. about your first contact with the world of Miles Davis. What, what did you hear? What caught your interest? Okay, so can I uh, back up a bit, if that's okay, and lead up to that point? Okay, so I did a very classical uh, degree at university. Uh, I was a clarinetist, and um, super classical, and uh, was planning on either working in uh, orchestras, or I also auditioned for the Canadian Forces, got... uh, 
got a gig with the Canadian forces as a professional musician in the, uh, in a military band. And, um, that was my first exposure really to jazz in any serious form. And I, I kind of started falling in love with it. So it was back when I was in the military, 1993, I had already graduated university and I started getting into this. And I remember listening to tunes like, uh, Freddie Freeloader and, um, just, you know, all the guys around me who are the jazz heads, they were bebop and stuff. And, and, uh, I mean, I'll talk about that in a little while, but, uh, I, all of a sudden I heard Miles and it was like a breath of fresh air. You know, here was a guy who left a little bit of space when he played, wasn't trying to fill every second, you know, and that, uh, that kind of started for me, uh, that love affair with Miles Davis and, um, have been a huge fan ever since actually. So now Miles has quite, uh, has had quite, uh, an incredible career spanning over 50 years. And yeah. what I've read, you know, uh, full, full disclosure, Tony, I know nothing about Miles Davis and I really know very little about jazz, but I've certainly done some reading and I've heard, you know, I, uh, I heard a few things here and there, but it seems like, Every decade, Miles had started sort of a new uh, or was pushing the boundaries of a new type of jazz. So yes. starting off with bebop and then right up to the 70s where he's into fusion and then getting into more contemporary uh, African and uh, yep. dealing with some rock and pop in the 80s. But what what version of Miles did you first hear? What was the one that turned you on? Were you listening to the very early Miles? Well, uh, no, I, I first heard... Um the, the first album that really turned me on to him was uh, the 58 Sessions. And um, I still have that CD, actually. Um, the 58 Sessions, all the gods of rock, I mean, sorry, all the gods of jazz, uh, gathered together in 1958. And, and Miles was instrumental in putting that together. And it was a who's who. And uh, I heard him play on there. And that, and that kind of started it. And then, of course, Kind of Blue, which is the you know, the most famous jazz album of all time. Uh, you start, I started listening to him play on that album as well. And, and I always liked how his use of space, you know, because bebop is hard driving music. And hmm. as much as it was fun, you know, I, I, so I started, you know, learning to play a little bebop, of course, for the technical challenges, but as a listener, I couldn't stand it. Um, and even even now, if I go into a jazz club, even as a jazz musician now, uh, if someone starts shredding on a solo, I'm out the door in about two minutes because I find it almost self indulgent music bebop. You know, I don't. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like it's more about the performer, it seems like, than it is about the audience. And so, um, right. so for me, Miles just that that 1958, 1959 Miles when he's experimenting with you know, like cool, that whole cool jazz movement. And that, that was the thing about Miles, right? Is uh, some people have said, you know, they joked around that jazz would have never moved forward unless Miles Davis had moved it forward at various points. I mean, he just, he just kept doing it over and over and over again. He reinvented himself constantly. Mm -hmm. um, a whole new, uh, in 1959, uh, when kind of blue came out, I mean, that, that just, took jazz in a whole new direction. And like you were saying, his later experiments with, uh, you know, with rock music and, um, and with African Folk. music and, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's in the rock and roll hall of fame. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, amazing. 
Yeah, he's an incredible guy. And, and rightly so. Um, I mean, he, uh, I guess in the 70s, he also dabbled in electronic music too, which is obviously near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I mean, he he did everything, right? And he wasn't afraid mm. to try new things. And um, he didn't like getting stale, you know? Um, but it so. seemed that um, the 70s and then later in the 80s, the more he pushed the boundaries, the more he seemed to alienate the jazz heads, but uh, grew more popular. Yeah, well, that's the that thing, true? right? Yeah, like he was accused, of course, by the jazz heads of being a sellout. Uh, but he didn't care, you know, and, and his popularity for sure. A lot of people don't know anything about Miles until they get into, you know, the 70s and 80s, Miles Davis. And um, that is actually the period I know the least about for him because I was more into his, you know, 50s and 60s uh, for his music. Right. The one thing um, I've been discovering with this little series uh, the more we, I'm introduced to um, the people that uh, uh, the, the cool artists that other people have chosen is that they're the, the one sort of uh, defining trait or the one through line is that each of these people are innovators. Uh, they have pushed boundaries. They have been unpredictable. Um, they have uh, chosen to move the bar without any concern about what anyone thinks other than what it feels to them. And Miles certainly uh, characterizes that in spades. Oh, yeah, for sure. And from a from an early uh, time, he was like that. You know, he didn't care. This is how I'm going to do it. And um and he dictated, and, and people ended up listening because he was so influential. Um, part of the appeal for me of a guy like Miles as well is, is that he was very, very human. You know, he was a deeply flawed uh, human being, but a, a brilliant musician. And, um, you know, I always think when people can overcome uh, character flaws like that, uh, you know, because of his uh, allegations of domestic abuse against his wife and everything, you know, um, he was not the greatest guy if you just look at it from a, a strictly moral perspective, right? But in terms of music, was brilliant. And he was very troubled. His drug use and alcohol use uh, really affected him. And um, and that's that's where that dark period uh, of his life with, with one of his wives uh, came from. You know, but but he was able to rise above that to create some absolutely brilliant music and to innovate and push boundaries and and make people listen. And that that to me, that's that guy invented cool, right? He was yeah. he was cool. You know, he was he was Miles Davis. There was nobody like him. But it raises an interesting question, and I had a, a similar conversation with uh, David Yazbek of CKCU and Rob Proust uh, of the Spoons. Um, we talked about. When you when you read biographies and you get to know your heroes on a much more intimate level, uh, that sometimes it poses a bit of a a dilemma. Uh, I know it certainly does for me. I, I read mm -hmm. a, a book about Lou Reed, who is um, uh, you know a, a big hero of mine, but found yeah, I love out Lou uh, Reed. some. Yeah. Yeah, but found out some things about him that were um, a little difficult to handle. Um, and uh, I, we'd also talked uh, briefly about the Chris France book about Talking Heads um, and the fact that David Byrne 
was not perhaps the nicest person, quite a bit of an, uh, quite an egotist, um, and uh, took a lot of the credit for all the songwriting when in fact it was sort of a band effort. And it leaves you questioning your loyalty to the artist. Um, you know, I also learned some things about David Bowie that weren't <laughs> the nicest. Well, and um, for sure. You, you, and you think about somebody like Michael Jackson, who yep. was supposed to be a pedophile, and uh, and you wonder how you wrestle with that when, you know, the, the music is so good, the art that they yeah. created was so good, but they're perhaps not so good. Does it taint how you feel about the art? Well, it used to. I'll say it used to because uh, I learned, you know, I learned recently, in fact, this week, I learned a few unsavory things about Billy Joel back in, uh, back in the eighties, uh, you know, things that he did to his band. And, uh, I didn't know the whole story there and, and it, and it kind of upset me, but it still doesn't change my perception of him as a musician, you know? And, um, but I think with a guy like Miles Davis, I think, um, you just learn to separate the artist from the music. And, and I think his troubles probably made him be a better musician. Uh, does that, does that make any sense? I think a lot of these guys, their troubles, uh, they're, they're so invested in the music side of things that they can't function, uh, in any other capacity, you know, and, and that, that idea goes back, I mean, to a guy like Beethoven, right. Who was so invested in being a musician that, that he couldn't function, as a person in society, practically, right? So, yeah, and Mozart the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wonder if that's got something to do with it. You know, I, I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's the thing, right? And, and because Miles did some terrible things, um, yeah. there's no, and that's well documented. You know, and like you say, Michael Jackson's the other one, and yet produced some brilliant music. You know, and yeah. it's a very tough thing to uh, reconcile, especially in today's cancel culture right like what you know how do we right. approach that i i'm not sure how you do that uh the only thing i know is that um i i still love the art um yes. regardless of what happened in their personal life it doesn't uh, it doesn't diminish the value of their art it, it diminishes the value of their character certainly but not yeah. not the art i don't think yeah no and that's a good way of putting it because you know the same thing with miles i mean his art is his art and uh his actions, uh, you know, especially when he was heavily involved with drugs and everything, um, mm -hmm. his actions were inexcusable, of course, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't diminish the art itself. You know, it just right. affects our perception of the person, of the man. Yeah. Um, I just want to wrap up this segment before we get a, move on to um, uh, your next artist. How does Miles define cool? What is it about him and his work that uh, that makes him the essence of cool well i think the first thing is uh, his willingness to experiment his willingness to take chances uh his willingness to say i'm doing this and um you may not know it yet but this is going to be a big movement um he always was one or two steps ahead you know he innovated so many times so i think that made him cool um his ability to uh, work with people when he was working with other musicians, um, 
his whole demeanor on stage. I, I love watching some of the old footage of Miles. You know, uh, they're playing, and uh, as soon as it's someone else's turn for a solo, Miles is lighting up a cigarette and walking back behind the piano and just <laughs> watching the soloist play, right, and either giving them a nod or, or shaking his right. head the other way. <laughs> uh, you know, so Quincy Jones, uh, like all these guys say that when Miles had this ability, you know, if he wasn't happy, he'd give you the evil eye, and that was it you knew, right. like, oh my God, you know, he didn't need to say anything, you know, so, but just his whole demeanor, his whole willingness to push boundaries and, and, and not get stale, I, I think made him, that was his essence of being cool. Yeah. Okay. We're going to call it a, call it a day on miles. We're going to take sure. a little break. And when, when we come back, um, we're going to have at uh, Hall of Notes. So we'll be right back. Stay with us. Thanks for dialing up the essence of cool. And if you like what you hear, we sure could do with your support. To help keep this podcast on the air, please toss a few bucks in our electronic tip jar, which is support at essenceofcool.com. We certainly appreciate it. Now let's get back to my conversation with Tony Stewart. Okay, and we're back. We're going from <laughs> uh, the world of jazz uh, all the way to, into left field to the world of pop <laughs> um, with Hollow Notes. And I have to admit, Tony, one of my favorite bands. I've been listening to Hollow Notes since Abandoned Luncheonette back in, what, 72 or so. So tell me a little bit about your yeah. introduction to Hollow Notes. What did you start, what, what was it that captured your attention? What song or what, uh, what phase of their career were you were listening to? Well, they were really popular when I was in high school. So uh, when I was in high school in the 80s, uh, I mean, that was their heyday, right? So, you know, all all the songs, you know, Man Eater, Private Eyes, I, I remember all those coming out. And I remember running home after school to try to get on much music. And, and yeah, so in high school, for sure. And uh, I always liked, I mean, I've always been a fan of soul music. And I love Blue Eyed Soul, which is Hall and Oates, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. I started listening to them uh, with Abandoned Luncheonette, which was, I'm just looking at their discography here, it was 1973. And they were yeah. truly wholly immersed in Blue-Eyed Soul at that point. Um, and I loved uh, pretty much everything they did in the 70s. When they jumped into the 80s, they be- they sort of shifted gears quite significantly. Yes. And I found myself questioning whether I still liked them because I so loved the blue eyed soul. Um, but then now suddenly they're immersed in pop. They're writing these great pop hits and don't get me wrong. They're great pop hits. Yes. These guys know how to write a, a hit song. Uh, but it was decidedly different from what I was used to uh, with uh, Abandoned Luncheonette and War, War Babies and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Daryl Hall John Oates uh, album. Um, did you, so you were, you caught on to them in the middle of their pop phase. Did you go back and research or listen to their, their earlier catalog? And if so, what were your thoughts? So that was much later that I really went back and listened to their back catalog. But uh I loved it when I first heard their, you know, like Abandoned Luncheonette is a brilliant album. God, what a, War Babies too. Like they're both fantastic albums. Um, 
You know, uh, one of my favorite Hall and Oates songs is uh, like Fall in Philadelphia. And yet, you mm-hmm. know, gets very little airplay. But to me, that is that is a brilliant song. You know, just that whole sound and that whole vibe. Um, it was much later, you know, probably in my 30s, maybe, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. But I loved it. And um, yeah. I like artists who can transition like that too, actually, you know, because they, they turned into really excellent pop musicians, like you said. They really did, for sure. Um, and I'm always up for an artist who is exploring new territory. You know, uh, David Bowie is certainly the prime example of that, and exactly. he's my, my number one guy. Um, and so I, I was willing to go the distance with them, and I did learn to appreciate the craftsmanship in the songs that they were writing in the 80s. But on the topic of the essence of cool, in the 70s, I truly thought they were the essence of cool. When they started doing the the kind of silly um, music videos in the 80s to go along with, you know, private eyes and what have you, (laughs) um, they they kind of, the, the cool sort of, cooled off for me i I thought they'd the cool kind of diminished a little bit um but it sounds like you had the opposite opinion yeah and you know i found out the story of why those like private eyes and those videos were so ridiculous was what was it their guitar player's name you know the guy he played on uh saturday night live too uh in the band that's right yeah um, yeah he was terrified of being in the videos and they just said you know what just stand oh. there man and, and that was it so they, <laughs> it was it was literally a case of him being terrified of of being in in videos and so that kind of dictated their choices of making those videos because i know the ones you're talking about they're all in the trench coats or whatever and it's just a yes. shot of the band right yes and so um, you're, you're yeah you're referring to ge smith um who is the great uh, music yes. director at Saturday Night Live uh, for many years after Paul Schaefer left. Um, but, you know, I find yep. that kind of funny because here's a guy who is uh, on live TV in front of millions and millions of people every Saturday night, but he was afraid to be in a music video. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that, but they, I heard, I saw an interview where he was talking about that and they, and they told him, you know what, man, just stand there and strum and we'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> Cause he, now there's a cool guy. Oh, he's so um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Where did their career go after the 80s? Because honestly, after about 85, 86, I kind of lost track of them. Yeah, they kind of disappeared, didn't they? But I think like a lot of other acts, all of a sudden, you know how they say things go in 20 year cycles, right? So there's all those nostalgia tours. I think that that was kind of that became their thing. Um, Right. Afterwards, you know, and then it was around uh, what, 2009 that Daryl started that. Tell that online show live at Daryl's house. What a great show! Now I've a I've. Can I get personal for a minute about that show? Please do. Okay, so, uh, well, well, you know, I had cancer, and in 2017, I I found out I had stage yeah. three uh, colon cancer. So, um, you know, yeah. I had to. I, I was off for quite a while, but uh, the, I got exposed to that show because I I mean I had nothing but time, right? So, uh, right. I went down the rabbit hole big time on that show and uh just a whole new appreciation of daryl hall i mean that guy is cool you know his willingness to to do something and it's not like he's a, a spring chicken when that show started right and you know but no. he's but he's experimenting he's pushing 
things forward, um, doing something that very few people had done. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, John Oates is a guy now who's so comfortable in his own skin, who's an excellent songwriter and an excellent vocalist in his own right. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it was always... Uh, totally aware that he was going to be the lesser known of Hall and Oates when they were together because I mean Daryl Hall's voice is so over the top good that it's it's yeah. tough for anybody to compare to that you know but uh, to me that's where uh, you know especially Daryl Hall uh, with that show there talk about cool there's a guy who's yeah. innovating bringing on musicians giving lots of people a chance uh, and not just famous musicians either he brought in some some younger people and and it gave them some exposure. Uh, one of my favorite episodes was with a young lady named Diane Birch, who I thought she was going to be a superstar. And and uh, he talked about her after, and he said she was unbelievable, but her career never went anywhere. You know, she's still around, but she's not doing anything. And, and it, was a, it was a real shock to me that she never went on, especially the way she lit up that show, you know. But uh, so, um, yeah, when I was off uh, getting chemotherapy and stuff i i went down the rabbit hole with that show and gave me a whole new appreciation of that guy and john oates as well because he was a frequent guest uh you know what uh, now i've seen many many uh, episodes of that show i haven't however seen the one you referred to with diane is it diane birch diane birch yeah she's unbelievable I'm going to have to look that one up. I also have not yet seen one with john oates and you say he's done a oh, couple really? with daryl yeah. yeah, he was on there three or four times. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, one, one, one of my favorite, and just because he holds a dear place in my heart, uh, is the, the one that um, Daryl did with, um, with Todd Rundgren. And I think back to, you know, they both sort of got their start in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Todd uh, produced one of their albums. And Todd, too, is, um, you know, could have been an amazing blue-eyed soul singer had he chosen that route. But, you know, um, Todd, like like Daryl, is a real innovator and is, you know, always striving to do something completely different. So he never kind of ended up in that direction. But um, I did love that episode with him. Yeah, and there, there were some other good ones, too. Yeah. Mm. Oh, many, many, many. Oh. Uh, I just love that. Yeah. Um, but I put the the Todd Rundgren episode. I particularly loved it because they actually didn't do it at Daryl's house. <laughs> they did it yeah. at Todd's house in Hawaii. <laughs> oh, there you go. I haven't seen that one, so I'll have to check that out. Oh, fantastic. Just fantastic. Um, and John Oates, of course, uh, uh, sort of near and dear to my heart because he came up to Canada in the mid-80s and produced an album for the Parachute Club. Oh. Um, a friend of mine, Jerry Young, is uh, the owner of uh, the Parachute Club's record company and talks very fondly of, of John Oates. Um, and uh, and that I thought thought it was a lovely pairing, and really, you know, we we say that uh, Daryl outshines John with his voice, but John has a lovely voice. He's got a great voice. I wish he had have used it more in Hall and Oates. To be honest, he's he's a, f- a terrific voice. Well, here's the thing: because he was using it uh, 
quite a bit in the in the seventies. So you know, abandoned luncheonette and war babies. Mm. There was a lot of John Oates uh, on that. Uh, but when we got into the eighties, it seemed like Daryl sort of masterminded uh, the sort of vocal architecture of the pop song. So John was sort of uh, yeah. uh, relegated to singing backup uh, backup vocals most of the time. But uh, so, in let's sort of wrap this up with a little bow here. How would how would you say they typify the essence of cool? What is it about Daryl Hall and John Oates that is supremely cool? Well, the fact that they've been working together for so long is supremely cool, you know, uh, and they, yeah. their relationship, they say they're like brothers, you know, they could, they don't talk to each other every day. You know, they've all, they've got their own circles of friends and things, but they can call each other and it's like no time has passed. And I, you know, I know they're planning on working together again. Now they're working on some more material and, you know, they'll go five years without doing anything together and then you know, it's time. Let's do another Hall and Oates project. So that loyalty that they've had to each other, uh, you know, the fact that they both recognize that uh, they're greater than the individual parts, the sum is greater, you know, um, right. to me, that's the essence of cool. And uh, just yeah. that, that brothership, that brotherhood. Yeah. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm um, pretty tickled that there's another uh, Hall & Oates album coming by because I seriously haven't heard anything from them since the, the late 80s, early 90s. I would love to hear what they'd be doing with in sort of today's digital world. I, they probably have all kinds of tricks up their sleeve. Um, and I just would love to hear that blend of vocals again because they're so great together. Yeah, and, and you know, that's another thing that makes them cool, right, is these guys are old guys, both in their 70s now, but not afraid mm -hmm. to use modern stuff, not afraid to play around with digital effects and, and mm -hmm. you know, the latest advances in synthesizers and stuff. So again, how cool is that, right? One quick question for you before we uh, uh, put a close to this segment and move on to the final segment, which I'm really looking forward to, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, and maybe a bit of connective tissue between uh, Hollow Notes and uh, the, the next artist that we're going to talk about. Um, one of the, I guess, one of the ways that one can judge a sense of coolness is if there's a longevity, if we could look back in 50 years and that artist is still cool, then perhaps, you know, that says volumes about uh, their um, innovation and uh, their ability to push the boundaries of their art. I think about Cab Calloway uh, or mm -hmm. uh, Lead Belly uh, or um, Little Richard. 50 years from now, will Daryl Hall and John Oates be considered cool? I think so. I think so. Um, obviously, people still love those guys because uh, you make my dreams come true just crossed. Did you hear that news? Uh, a billion streams. No. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, so, well-deserved. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously they're cool now. I think they'll be cool in 50 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk about one of the first huge musical influences on my life, and certainly uh, a band that has a, had a huge impact on you, uh -huh. The Beatles. So we'll take a little break, and uh, we'll see you on the flip side.
We'd love to hear from you. Tell us about the shows you liked or didn't like. Or if you've got a show or guest suggestion, please drop us a line at info at essenceofcool.com. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back with Tony Stewart. And uh, so far, we've talked about Miles Davis, uh, Hall and & Oates, and now we're getting into the final artist. I don't think anyone in the world would disagree with this, <laughs> but you've chosen for your final pick, The Beatles. Yeah, and in fact, I was hoping to you know, go with uh, even more narrowly with George Harrison, actually, uh, as, uh, as my pick. But sure, The Beatles in general, and then George Harrison specifically. Okay, well, let's start with The Beatles. Uh, I distinctly remember my first introduction to The Beatles, but what was yours? So again, uh, high school, you know, hearing uh, middle school, high school, hearing some of their songs and and. I was always into music, you know, I was saying I took piano lessons as a kid, I did band in high school, and, and it, it always blew me away how every song was different, and it seemed like they could do any style, you know, so mm-hmm. um, even though, you know, hey, that's a Beatles song, but it, it would, you know, it, from one, it could go from country to, you know, hard rock to like a ballad to, you, you name it, and they were able to do it, and and um I think that always impressed me was just that versatility. And and so, I mean, that makes them really cool because they innovated in every possible way you can think of. So let's give this some context. When you started hearing the Beatles, I'm assuming that sadly John had already left this mortal coil. Correct? Yes. Cause I was 11 when I, I yeah, I was 11 when John uh, passed away. So, um, it would have been two or three years later that I would have seriously started listening to them more. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember the first Beatles song you heard? Oh my goodness. Um, I don't, I, I, because I, you know, I had a friend who had a bunch of albums and we listened to a bunch of them. So I can't, I can't remember. Plus they would have been on the radio all the time. Right. So Right. Yeah, I can't. Do you do you remember so, your first Beatles song? I do. Oh. And so I have I have kind of a unique perspective here because I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> and um I remember when they first hit North American Airwaves. Um I don't remember the exact song, uh, but it probably would have been she loves you or uh, something like that. Uh-huh. But they, they had, they made such an incredible impact on me. I was probably seven years old at the time, six years old, seven years old. They had such a huge impact on me that all I could think from the, the time I heard them uh, forward was music is in my blood. I have to do something with this. This resonates far too deeply to me for, to me for uh, to leave it as sort of a passing uh, a passing fancy. There is something about this band. There is something about the music that, that they create that is resonating in me. In fact, in my grade two uh, class picture, I am playing air guitar to She Loves You. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> so they had a huge impact on me. Now, of course, later on, when I, uh, later on in my early teens, um, I discovered David Bowie and life changed dramatically uh, again. But the, pe- the, the band that got me into music was the Beatles. 
And I remember seeing A Hard Day's Night, and I remember listening to every album that came out and every single that they released and being in love with everything. Yeah, and you know, I remember exactly the same. I just, I, I remember listening to these songs and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and um, and the fact that you'd listen to something like A Hard Day's Night and then two years later they're coming out with stuff that is so different, you know, that, that was yeah. incredible. In, in such yeah. a short period of time, the way that they transformed themselves. Yeah. Now, interesting that, because again, uh, you know, one of the, the characteristics of uh, somebody who has the essence of cool is being an innovator. And they were the music, pop, pop music innovators of all time. And uh, yes. every time every new album came out and there was something a little different, they were pushing the envelope a little bit every time they, they went into the studio. And the f- interesting that the audience stuck with them. Every time they wanted to, to, to change and try something new, uh, uh, their fans stuck with them. They didn't, uh, uh, they didn't run away. You know, I, you know, I think about our conversation a little bit uh, a few minutes ago about Miles Davis and how he sort of uh, the jazz, the jazz has, as you, as you call them, kind of abandoned him when he started pushing the envelope. But nobody ever abandoned the Beatles when they tried, tried to change gears. No, no. Uh, you know, one of those, they had commercial and critical success and, and as they got, uh, you know, a little, like as they got weirder and, and, uh, they got more popular and, uh, people just went with it. It was pretty amazing when you look back at it. I don't know if that would happen now, you know? Good, good point. Because even in that sort of psychedelia phase, you would think that, um, you know, a few fans would say, you know what? I want I want more of She Loves You. Yeah. <laughs> or I want more Rubber Soul. But this psychedelia stuff, but no, people loved it. People ate it up. Yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. I don't I don't think today that would happen just because uh right. I mean I could go into a big rant about streaming and stuff, but uh I think that that's one of the you know things that we see nowadays is that uh where artists can't make money selling albums anymore uh people take less and less risks because they have to rely on streaming and live performance and you can't do stuff that's out there because people won't you know listen to it or or buy it anymore but back in the beatles time for sure they could um although there are still artists who push the envelope and they don't really care whether people continue to stream them or not i think for a, like a band like Radiohead, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, regardless of what people think. Um, mind you, they, they have enough money to do that, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's maybe more the, uh, along the lines of the, uh, the, the pop artists of the day are really invested in making the next hit. They don't want to, tr- they don't want to alter the formula because the formula is working. Well, that's right. Yeah, but I, in my estimation, that's not a true artist. An artist should be someone who is willing to explore, push the boundaries, try new things without worrying that uh, the fan base is going to follow them. Well, yeah, I don't think, uh, as, as far as I can tell, you know, obviously uh, I should ask my co-host about this, Aaron Badgley, but because uh, he he's, you talk about somebody who knows a lot about the Beatles, boy. Um, yeah. But... I don't think that Lennon and McCartney 
said, Hey, we have to write the next number one hit. They just said, Hey, this sounds cool. Let's try this, you know, and, and let the chips fall where they may. I don't think they were trying to, to sell a number one record. Although I bet they had some pressure from the record company yeah, they in the early did, days. But I don't know. Yeah. But like, you know, when they did, I don't think when they did an album, like you say, like Sgt. Pepper or something. Yeah. When they did Sgt. Pepper, I mean, it was clear that uh, they didn't care what anybody thought. <laughs> they were going to damn the torpedoes and just do whatever the hell they wanted to do. And everybody went with them and, and God bless them for doing that because they, you know, one of the most brilliant uh, pieces of work in their catalog for sure. Uh, but let's let's push ahead to uh, let's single out, uh, not Lennon McCartney, let's single out George Harrison. Why is George cooler than the rest of the Beatles? Well, for me, George always resonated with me, um, you know, the quiet beetle, of course. Um, but I always liked that confidence that he had, even though it didn't always look like he did. And when he started coming into his own as a songwriter, I, I think his stuff, uh, you know, his contributions to the White Album and to Abbey Road stand up there with anything that uh, Lennon and McCartney did. I, you, you take a song like Here Comes the Sun or something, uh, those songs are are amongst the best that the Beatles period ever did, in my opinion. So yeah. just very cool because he came into his own, you know, he could have been totally overshadowed, but, but came into his own and was actually the first Beatle to, you know, to have a number one hit as a soloist after the Beatles broke up. So yeah. his tunes are some of my favorites and I think his tunes, yeah. um, well, Here Comes the Sun is the most streamed Beatles song and that's a George Harrison yeah. tune, right? So. Uh, I think I've told you this before, but in my estimation, George was the soul of the Beatles. Oh, I like, I like that. I, I would agree with that, actually. I would. And, um, yeah. you know, he was also a little bit the glue that held the Beatles together, don't you think? Because, I mean, there was so much fighting and, you know, Ringo stormed out at one point and, I mean, so did George, but I mean, he seemed to be the a little <laughs> bit of the glue that held them together, you know? <laughs> I remember watching Let It Be and there the scenes that stuck out for me when you know there's there was a lot of drama in that movie. <laughs> so, yes. And I'm sure there was a lot of drama in the studio all the time, the entire, their entire career. But George was just this kind of, I'll do whatever you want, man. Yep. <laughs> you know, just, just let me know what you want me to play. I'll play it. <laughs> and, you know, I've been watching some footage of later Beatles performances, you know, and even the rooftop performances. And George had that, that smile, right? And he didn't smile very often, but when he smiled, you know, it was just gold, right? Like this guy was loving yeah. what he was doing and and so happy, you know? And, and that smile was so endearing to me. Yeah, for sure. Was it from your podcast that I heard this or was it something else? But I didn't realize that the whole the the police interrupting that uh, rooftop performance was all staged oh yeah that was from our podcast yeah aaron had uh, le- had mentioned that in our show yeah i guess that you know the police had come up and they were listening to the show just like everybody else <laughs> and of course yeah. the beatles wanted to get carted off right they wanted this to right. <laughs> <laughs> So I I go back to uh, the the question I asked you during the Hall and Oates uh, segment, and that is fifty years from now, will the Beatles be still be cool? I think um, yeah, I think we <laughs> we can both agree that, that that's without question. <laughs> well, but what what was it about them? So obviously the the innovation factor. Um, 
I can tell you, because, you know, I'm a high school music teacher too, right? And so I just taught a grade nine class mm-hmm. all about rock history, and they ate the Beatles up. And they wow. thought the Beatles were cool. And now they keep sending me pictures through Teams, right? Because, you know, you can chat back and forth. They keep sending me pictures of, hey, look, my dad has this album and I just listened to it. It's wicked, you know? And um, I, know. I made them do an assignment and it was, they they totally got their backs up at first when I explained it. And then afterwards, like, man, Mr. Stewart, that was the coolest thing I've ever done is I said, you know, just go on YouTube or whatever, because all the Beatles albums can be found on YouTube or Spotify. And I said, you have to listen to a whole album. We're going to do it in class. Bring your headphones. You're not allowed to do anything else. No multitasking, no going on your phone. Just listen to the album and nothing else. And I listened as well. And I listened to Revolver, but they just picked whatever album they wanted. And then we talked about it. And they thought that was the coolest thing that they had ever done because they don't know how to listen anymore. They can hear, they hear all kinds of stuff, but they don't take time to listen. So super valuable lesson, I thought, and they loved it. And an interesting uh, generation because they're listening to music in a much different way. Not just that they're listening to it digitally or listening to playlists, but they're listening to it at as part of this sort of continuum, that it's not something that they're paying attention to necessarily no it's just part of their soundscape well that's right it's wallpaper it's wallpaper it exactly yeah that's exactly what it is and so uh you know the whole point of it was guys no you're going to listen because the whole one when you and i went out and bought albums i mean we would rush home and we would listen to them right that was right and you did nothing else like you i remember sitting on the bed there doing nothing else and just listening to the album Top to bottom. I was talking to David Yazbek about that very, <coughs> pardon me, that very topic. That in our day, when we went out and bought an album, as you say, we it was an event. Yes. The only thing that we were going to do was to put that uh, piece of vinyl on the platter, and we were going to pay attention because we were invested in hearing every note. Yep. And that, that's a concept that is lost uh, or, or is becoming lost. And so I, I had hoped that they would respond to that assignment, and they did. They, they, and they still talk about it. Actually, I see some of them now in the hall or whatever, and like, man, Mr. Stewart, that was the best, you know? So I'm like, well, right on. You know, maybe I've created a new generation of Beatles fans, hopefully. <laughs> My fingers are crossed, sir. My fingers are crossed. <laughs> um, how, how important is it for a young band just starting out to consider cool as uh, a component of their overall presentation. Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because today, you know, the, the connotation of cool maybe is not the same way that you and I would look at cool. Um, mm. You know, uh, I think maybe for these guys, cool might be a willingness to not care what other people think to be yourself you know, to identify as who you identify as and um, the world be damned. And so in that sense, I think it's really important to, to kids today. And, and they seem totally tolerant to that, which is great, I think. Um, I want to wrap up our segment on the Beatles, but before I let you go, we're going to play a little game. Okay. And the little game is called Cool Not Cool. Mm. I, I'm going to... Uh, shout out a bunch of 
names of artists one at a time, of course. Okay. And you tell me whether they are cool or not, in your estimation, of course. Okay. And if you have any follow-up, please go ahead. Okay. So let's let's get started. Justin Bieber, cool or not cool? I hate him. Um <laughs> but I would say he's he's cool because of his whole journey to to superstardom and, and his where he started and and still still matters, sadly. But uh he you know, that guy turns over in his sleep and it's in the newspaper somewhere. So uh yeah, unfortunately he's yeah. cool, but I, I can't stand him. <laughs> Despite <laughs> the bottom line is he's a really talented individual. No, for sure. For sure. I, yeah, you know, yeah. without question. So yeah, he's, he's cool. Cab Calloway. Oh, super cool. Super cool. Uh, okay. Moving on. Ozzy Osbourne. Cool. Not cool. Very cool. Yeah. And again, just his, you know, uh, the way that he reinvented himself in his solo career. Uh, yeah. Cool. Although a lot of that I think has to do with the, the, the real driving force in the Osborne family and that's Sharon. Yes. <laughs> can I, can I, okay. tell, can I tell you a story about Ozzy here? Yeah, please. Okay. This is a great one. So, <laughs> you know, in New York city, you ever been to the wax museum in New York city? No. Okay. What's well, great. Like the, was it the Madame Tussauds or whatever? Is it like whatever right. the, Anyway, the wax museum has a, a wax statue of Ozzy, so I posed with it. This is years ago, before we had cell phones or anything, right? It was on a band trip, actually, a high school band trip, and one of the chaperones oh, took a picture. And I have that picture posted in my music room, and, and about 10 years ago, because like a lot of the boys were into Ozzy, like, oh, man, is that really Ozzy? Like, you and Ozzy know each other? And I would always say, yeah, you know, Ozzy and I are tight, man. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was a wax dummy, right? So. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on. Elvis, cool, not cool. Oh my gosh, the, the epitome of cool. Tragically hip. Cool. I was never I, I was never a huge hip fan, but I would say there's a really? cool factor there. I'm going to get pilloried for saying this. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get skewered for saying this. <laughs> Sometimes I thought the hip were a little, uh, little overrated, um, but... Really? I had, I had some songs that I really enjoyed of theirs, but I was never a big fan. You know, I knew people who who lived and died by the hip, but yeah, for me, uh, I, I liked some of the tunes. I just was never a huge fan. So yeah, I'd say they're cool, though. I wasn't fanatical about yeah. them, but I really did appreciate uh, their ability to craft a really cool rock song. And I have to admit, when I watched the final concert in Kingston uh, on the television, uh there were tears in my eyes. Yeah, know, that to, was it was pretty interesting to watch that. And um, you know, it was cool. Gord Downey would go off on tangents in the middle of shows, and and uh, you never knew what you were going to get. Right? Mm -hmm. It was so. Yeah, there was a, a cool factor there for sure. Yeah, I loved that. You know, he would have an argument with his microphone in the middle of a song. <laughs> I mean, who does that? <laughs> Um, okay, moving on. Uh, you know, in the middle of this list, there's a little band called the Beatles, but I think we've covered them, so we'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> Frank Zappa. Oh, cool. I mean, Frank Zappa, again, is like he's one of the coolest cats out there, you know, just influential. 
uh, not everybody knew all of his stuff, but those who did were revered the guy. Yeah, he was he was pretty incredible. I'm just starting to listen to some of the symphonic uh, tracks that he he wrote, and just incredible. In fact, there was a a performance he did not long before he died um, that was just out of this world. Uh, just amazing to me um, how that man that man thought of music because he thought of it in so many different ways. You know, I mean, remember uh, the first television interview I saw was on the an early episode of the Tonight Show before Johnny Carson, where he was playing the bicycle tire and oh. he made the bicycle tire sound cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Beach Boys. Cool, for sure. But I never kind of yes. thought they were cool. I just thought they were great musicians. Okay, uh, you know, I um, I thought they were cool. Brian Wilson, in particular, I thought was cool. Um, you know, because uh, because of o- overcoming struggles like he had. Boy, that was incredible. Yeah. Well, true enough, eh? Yeah, I think yeah. If we separate out Brian Wilson, then definitely Brian Wilson is cool. Well, when you said the Beach Boys, I, I automatically defaulted to Brian Wilson. So, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I would say he's okay. cool. You're right, though. Beach Boys, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, I just I think about some of the uh, the music videos that we saw from them in the sort of early to mid '60s. All the all the the surfer kind of the surfer based music videos just kind of seemed a bit cheesy to me. But when you as you as you point out, when you think about Brian Wilson, definitely cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's do two more. Sure. Uh, first one is Neil Young. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I'm a huge Neil Young fan. I got to say Neil's cool because, um, if we say that someone who's cool, you know, is, is an individual, not afraid what people think, not afraid to go in his own direction. Um, well, are there words that describe Neil Young that are any better than that? I mean, that guy speaks his mind, uh, isn't afraid to try new things and isn't afraid to offend people. And, you know, he's, he's a, he's a very cool customer. Yeah. Agreed. Um, the final one out of left field, the bare naked ladies. I think the bare naked ladies are cool. Um, and I think the bare naked ladies are cool because, you know, when you look at them, uh, just from appearances, if you were to see a photograph of these guys, you know, you'd think, okay, they're like a bunch of nerds or whatever, like, especially in, in their Gordon days, but, uh, good band, you know, and, and came up with some, some wicked songs and, and, and different sounding songs as well. You know, they had funny ones, but they also had serious ones and, and they were pretty unique, I think. I agree with you completely. I had them on a couple of TV shows and they are exactly the same off camera as they are on camera. And that to me is the true testament of cool. Yeah. See, I was more of a BNL fan than I was of a hip fan for sure. Okay. That's interesting. eh? Um, Listen, Tony, I'm going to wrap this up. It's been a delightful hour. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. I, it's really, really fun. And uh, I was, uh, those were great choices at the end for cool or not cool. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I think it's a kind of a fun exercise just to see what people think, you know? I mean, my my tastes are all over the map, and yeah, sometimes exactly. I think they're cool, sometimes I don't think they're cool. But But it's always interesting to get somebody else's perspective, you know? 
Well, yeah, and I'm, you know, grudging. I was gritting my teeth when I said that uh, Bieber was <laughs> some cool factor, but <laughs> you got to... <laughs> All right. Listen, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, of course, everybody can catch you on Stewie, the Stewie Tunes podcast. Yeah, the Stewie Tunes show. Yep. Yeah. And we'll be uh, putting up a link to that on, the, on our website as well. Uh, thanks again, and uh, great to talk to you, Tony. I really enjoyed that conversation with Tony. Please check out his podcast. You can get more info at stewytunes.com. Thanks for listening to The Essence of Cool. I'm Bernard Fraser saying, please support independent artists and stay safe. Stay safe.